And once that happens, now you have the genesis for a new market and aircraft companies will start building supersonic airplanes and then people can start enjoying the benefits of getting to places faster. We like to say that when you're flying, you're flying with NASA Aeronautics because the technologies that NASA has developed are on every part of every airplane that exists right now. This is our first attempt to completely replace the entire propulsion system on the airplane with all electric systems. You're listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast featuring interviews and stories, tapping into project experiences in order to unravel lessons learned, identify best practices, and discover novel ideas. I'm Tina Nunley. NASA-developed technology directly benefits the air transportation system, the aviation industry, and the passengers and businesses who rely on aviation every day. The Flight Demonstrations and Capabilities Project, FDC for short, is part of the Aeronautics Research Mission Directorate's Integrated Aviation Systems Program, which matures and transitions advanced technologies into future air vehicles and operational systems. FDC Project Manager Brent Cobley is our guest today. Brent, thanks for joining us. Could you give us a quick overview of the Flight Demonstrations and Capabilities Project? Sure. FDC has really two big distinct elements um, that are really a lot different from one another um, that are stuck together, and it's right in the name. We have flight demonstrations and we have capabilities. So one part is uh, we call the flight research capabilities or capabilities for short. And it's really just a caretaking and feeding of the agency's key flight test facilities and support facilities and capabilities. Uh, So this is both hardware um, capabilities and people. It's these expertise of how to run these facilities. So we consider the capabilities a national asset. So aeronautics is funds them and keeps them going. But money does come in from other areas um, when we partner with uh, other major directorates within within NASA, like the space side or the science side. Um, sometimes they use, they do atmospheric research and flight, and uh, we, we support them through the capabilities as well. And then um, the other big part of that is the flight demonstration side. So these are mostly moderate to complex flight research projects that have a focus goal Uh, to advance a particular technology related to the aviation system in some way. And so FDC's flight demonstrations part of the project is really focused on helping bring things to flight. Um, Not everything needs to go to flight to really prove its technology, but the things that do, um, FDC is there to help um, a lot of other projects within aeronautics take their technologies that they've been working on in a lab, doing simulations and, you know, advanced analysis work on, and done a lot of lab testing is some of these technologies need to go to flight to prove that they're really ready to to go into a real product. And so we we take those technologies and help these other projects integrate them onto an airplane of of some type. Sometimes we have to build an airplane from scratch or a small test model or something like that. And we just figure out ways to efficiently do that. And we partner with them or sometimes multiple projects to achieve their goals. So that's the key part of demonstrations is helping other aeronautics projects achieve their goals. Let's talk first about the capability side. What are some of the activities on the capability side of the project? So capabilities has four key elements that we have to pursue. The first one is our simulation lab. Uh, So out at Armstrong, we have a very um, capable simulation infrastructure that we use to support projects. And these simulations can range from 
very small, just all software simulations that an engineer can use at their desk to just do different types of analyses um, up to a bigger simulation where a pilot would be sitting in a cockpit and flying things. Uh, and then it gets even more complex than that. We have simulations that have not only a cockpit in simulation, but they have all the flight hardware there. The, the, the actual mission control computer that's in the airplane is there. And maybe even the simulation is moving things on the actual airplane, the running the hydraulics, running, the, moving the control surfaces or something like that. So the simulation capability is real is really critical for flight tests to test software development, to test you know maneuvers we're going to fly, to make sure certain things are safe. Um, there's just all kinds of cap uh, use for the simulation. So our capabilities does investments to help them really develop new infrastructure and develop new simulation capabilities. And then the projects put their money into the sim lab to fund their individual uh, sims. So the simulation lab is a little bit of a smaller uh, investment for my project. Um, the second asset and capabilities we call the flight loads lab. And that's where we do structural testing on uh, flight experiments or airplanes. And so we take airplanes or the or experiments in there and we test them under loads, the type of loads you'll see during, uh, you know, the aerodynamic loads and the, the maneuver loads that you'll see during a flight activity. And so we put static loads on those or where you're just sort of putting weight or pulling on something to simulate the loads you'd see in flight. And then we can also do dynamic testing where if you have a wing in flight, uh, you have vibrations that are induced by the aerodynamics and other things or just the structure vibrating. And so we can simulate that on the ground so through what we call a ground vibration testing. So that's also done in the loads lab. It's very critical for new flight experiments. And then that loads lab can actually do really high temperature uh, testing as well. So we can put a, an aircraft structure under a load while it's being heated. So this is really useful for really high speed flight experiments like hypersonic experiments where you're flying, you know, five or 10 times the speed of sound, the aerodynamic, um, the aerodynamics, the air molecules around the vehicle will heat it up. And so we can simulate that on the ground and add this, the loads as well. So we can add high temperature and add structural loads at the same time. That's a really unique capability that NASA has. Um, the third capability is we call our support aircraft and maintenance operations. So we maintain a small fleet of aircraft that support our flight experiments in a lot of ways. Um, most of our research experiments, we use chase aircraft. So the research aircraft will fly, but if they have any problems in flight, you want an extra set of eyes there looking at it and helping the pilot, you know, bring the airplane back safe if there's some kind of emergency. So we do, uh, we use this support fleet for chasing experiments. We also use it to keep our pilots proficient. We have, you know, really advanced test pilots, uh, really highly capable, and we have to keep their skills up. And so they're able to take these airplanes out and go do um, practice missions and, and keep their skills um, really honed. Uh, but we also use this support fleet to carry experiments. So um, we modify the airplanes, we put experiments on them, we carry things under them um, that are uh, different types of, of advanced research. So we don't always modify a complete aircraft or build an aircraft from scratch. Sometimes we can just take, oh, we're testing some new material and we want to see how it gets uh, impacted by, let's say, atmospheric conditions like rain. And so we can put this material on a little structure under one of the airplanes. We can carry it with our support airplane. It might be an F-15, for example. We can fly it at high speed, low speed, high altitude, low altitude, fly it through rain and all these different conditions to test whether the material can really withstand that. Uh, so that's a key capability. So that's, that's our support aircraft. And then the last one is what people might think of when they think of a flight test is we have a, a set of control rooms. So we have the, the engineers on the ground that are monitoring the test airplane. 
um, looking at all the different parameters, the different instrumentation that's being telemetered down to the control room on these displays. And you'll have people like a, at a structure station, aerodynamic station, you know, operations, all these different stations that are monitoring different things about the test airplane and, um, and making sure that things are being done safe, first of all, and then secondly, making sure that we're collecting the right data. We're doing research here, so we have to collect the right data, make sure we're collecting it in the right way. And, and that team can tell, you know, through the communication system to the pilot, hey, we'd like to repeat that maneuver or we'd like you to do it, you know, a few more Gs, you know, at a higher level or something like that. So we can, we use that to monitor. So we call it the Dryden Aeronautical Test Range, manages the control rooms, the radars we use to track the airplane. We have video trackers and we have, of course, the communication systems to be able to talk to the pilot, receive the telemetry. And so that system of things, the Dryden Aeronautical Test Range, is a real key capability for national flight tests. And then what's happening on the flight demonstration side of the project? So right now we have uh, a number of, we call them sub-projects, they're, but they're all really projects on their, on their own. Uh, a couple of the ones I have right now are pretty major activities. The one that people may have heard about is called X-57. So X-57, anytime you hear X in, a, in, a, in an airplane designation, it means it's an experimental aircraft and it receives this designation from the Air Force. Each X-plane has a purpose. And so X-57, we call it Maxwell, has, that's its nickname, named after the, the famous scientist that did a lot of work in magnetism and electricity. So he got the name Maxwell because it's an electric airplane demonstrator. So this is our first attempt to completely replace the entire propulsion system on the airplane with all electric systems. So the way we did that, of course, we don't want to go try to build a, a giant airplane and do that for the first time. So we're starting you know, relatively small. We have a twin engine general aviation airplane. And the goal of the project is really let's take the piston engines out of the airplane, the traditional type propulsion system, and then replace that with all electric motors and controllers and also replace the power system for that uh, with a battery, very complex battery system. And so uh, our goal is to go out and show that that's much more efficient than a traditional piston powered or fueled, you know, traditionally fueled airplane. And, and our goal is to show that it's five times more efficient. So you're essentially to be on the same flight condition, you're using basically 20% of the energy um, that you would use if you were in a, a fueled airplane. And the reason for that is because electric motors and power systems are just much, much more efficient than a traditional um, piston, you know, reciprocating engine or even a turbine engine. So, you know, the goal is that we can really reduce energy usage, which, of course, improves the environment as well along the way. And it also opens up a new market. You can make airplanes uh, less expensive if you're using a lot less fuel it potentially could open some new markets where, uh, you know, there isn't a market today. Um, so that's our goal. In, in the process of executing X-57, we're sort of seeding a brand new industry. Um, so there's a lot of big players people have heard about in the commercial airline business, you know, the Boeing and Lockheed and, you know, all of these companies, Airbus. Um, but within the electric world, you're starting, you're seeing new startups, dozens and dozens of them, and really hundreds of millions of dollars in new investment are coming in. And so it's, you know, you're seeing the companies that might be the next Tesla that's sort of spawning the industry. And so the industry is now uh, starting to look at electric for both small airplanes and large airplanes. The large airplanes, of course, are much longer distance in the future, but the small airplane 
activity has a couple of key areas that we, we think are, are ripe for um, more near term, say in the next decade or two. Uh, one of those areas is we call urban air mobility. And this is a, a concept if you can think of a ride sharing platform like Uber or Lyft. Imagine that those capabilities use the vertical dimension as well as in addition to the streets and highways that those vehicles travel around. Imagine if you had a vehicle that could fly above the city and go in every direction. And so this urban air mobility market, which is starting to spawn, uh, will be able to carry you know, a handful of passengers from point to point, just like an Uber type uh, ride, and be able to do that efficiently um, and at a cost that's you know reasonable. But the key to making that possible is that these vehicles need to, to go to electric. That's how you get the efficiency. Um, it also, um, having electric um, also gives you a lot of design um, flexibility as well, to design the airplanes in different ways. Uh, you've seen vehicles that can carry four passengers across the city, like a helicopter, right? Helicopters are extremely noisy and use a ton of fuel, are very expensive. These urban air mobility vehicles will have many rotors, which will help reduce the noise. It also improves safety. And they can all be driven with electricity, which gives you a lot of flexibility, like I said, in the design. So that is a, a market that's upcoming um, that we're contributing to with a, with a seedling activity like X-57. The goal, hopefully, is to then, for a bit larger and larger airplanes, as the technology matures, um, you should be able to see you know, short hop airplanes that are flying between small cities, for example. Um, most airline flights fly 500 miles or more, but there's a lot of cities in the country that aren't really served by airlines, but they have, you know, populations of a few hundred thousand people. And so these smaller airplanes that could transport, say, 20 people between cities or bring people from a small city over to a hub city like Los Angeles so that they could catch a flight, international flight, um, would be really valuable to people. And so we see that um, as a totally new market opening up, which both helps people, helps mobility, um, helps with economic competitiveness, creates really good jobs. It just has a lot of benefits for the United States. So X-57 is sort of a first step in that. So that's one of our, our big projects within flight demonstrations. Another one that I, I see that people find very interesting is um, this project we call Shamrock. So if people have been around NASA, you're, you know that NASA has lots of acronyms. Uh, and so Shamrock was a way of describing this really complicated project we have. And it stands for Schlieren airborne measurements and range operations for Quest, Quest with a Q. And so this project really is developing capabilities for our low boom flight demonstrator. So NASA right now has made a major investment to develop the technologies and prove them for how do we get the sonic boom of, of supersonic airplanes quieter so that we can have a viable commercial market for supersonic airplanes. Right now, it's illegal for an airline to operate a supersonic airplane over the United States. That's why there is no supersonic flight. Um, it's just the, the first generation airplanes like the Concorde were just too loud and noisy and you know bother people on the ground. So we've been working for many decades on improving the technology and the prediction tools to be able to design an airplane that's quieter. We've done a lot of flight tests and design work over the last, like I said, a couple decades. And we've gotten to the point where we think we can build an airplane now that's quiet enough that it won't bother people. And so we've embarked on that journey. And there is a project called Low Boom Flight Demonstration. And we're, uh, we've awarded a contract to Lockheed. It's, Lockheed's our, our partner. And they are right now building that research airplane. It'll be another X airplane called X-59. So once we start flying that airplane, the question is going to be, 
you know, is it, is it, does it really meet the design objective? Is it quiet as we, as we think, does it really, does it bother people or does it not bother people? And so we're going to do that in a number of ways. There is a project that will be measuring the noise on the ground and also surveying people that were flying over to find out how it bothered them or whether they even noticed it, you know, going about their normal daily business. But then there's another capability that we need um, and we need to measure things in flight. And so that's where Shamrock comes in. And so my project is developing really two key capabilities. One is what we call a shock sensing probe. And so this probe is actually going to measure the shockwave strength as the low boom airplane is flying at 55,000 feet and 925 miles an hour. We'll be flying around that vehicle within, you know, 100 feet or, or less and or, you know, up to a further distance as well. But we'll be using the probe on our airplane, which will be an F-15 to actually penetrate the shockwave. So we'll be flying under it, flying up through the shockwave structure of low boom and measure the shock strength at every point along that path. And we'll use that data to compare to our ground predictions, we call computational fluid dynamics, where we predict what the shock strength is gonna be. And we'll use that to compare to make sure that we're actually predicting it well. And if on the ground we measure a sh the shockwave strength is higher than we predicted, the shock sensing probe data will help us try to understand why it was off. And the whole goal of this is to not only prove that a certain noise level is acceptable to the public, but to make sure our design tools work well so that the industry can design the next generation of supersonic airplanes. This X-plane we're building is not a commercial airliner, but they'll need the tools to develop those airplanes. So the shock sensing probe is a key part of that. The other key part to try to understand um, the low boom shock structure is what we call Schlieren. So Schlieren is named after a, a German scientist that developed this capability in a wind tunnel to be able to visualize a shockwave. Shockwaves you can't see with your eyes. And so we've developed the capability in flight now to be able to use a camera to look at shockwave structure, look at an airplane flying by. And the shockwaves create little density waves. And if you fly that airplane in such a way that you have a background that has a, a speckled background, you could say, and in the past, we've used sort of the desert floor with all the shrubberies on the desert. But the new technique we're going to be used is going to use the sun with a special filter. And just the sunspots are going to be used as a speckled background. And as the shock waves travel through that, our camera will be looking at it and we'll see the background spots. And, you know, the airplane will fly through the path of the sun. We have these software tools that can reconstruct the bending of the, of the sunspots as it goes through the shock wave. And using some advanced software techniques, we can reconstruct what the shockwaves look like. And if you've ever seen a shockwave structure in one of these Schlieren pictures, what you see is not just a big strong shock on the front of the airplane. Every little perturbance on the airplane, like the canopy, the inlet to the engines, the tails, they all create their own shocks. And so the, the low boom airplane is going to have you know dozens of shocks coming off of it. By the time that reaches the ground, those shocks join together and create these really strong shocks. The design for the LBFD airplane, the low boom airplane, is to try to keep those shocks weaken, both weaken the shocks and to keep them separated so you don't get this sharp bang sound on the ground. You get sort of a rumble sound or people say it well, hopefully will sound more like a car door closing outside. So in the normal uh, course of your daily business, you hopefully won't notice the sound going by. It'll sound like every other noise that people hear in their daily life, like traffic and you know, cars driving by and, you know, people talking in the background. So Shamrock, our project is developing those capabilities to really prove that we understand how to design 
supersonic airplanes in a way that we can keep them quiet. Uh, so that once we have that, we, uh, we're going to take this information to the international board that manages the rules for air traffic worldwide. We're going to change the rule and say, this is the noise level that airlines or that you know, aircraft companies need to build airplanes to, that the world will allow to fly supersonically over land. And once that happens, now you have the genesis for a new market and aircraft companies will start building supersonic airplanes and then people can start enjoying the benefits of getting to places faster. So again, it's NASA has a role in trying to create a, a new market where one doesn't exist right now and Shamrock plays a role in that. So those are some of the big, uh, two of the big flight demonstration projects that we're working on right now. Brent, these technologies and capabilities that you're talking about, so many of them have really been what we have long considered futuristic technologies, things we've seen in sci-fi and cartoons, and now you're actually working the technologies and trying to bring these to market. What are some of the challenges of managing the projects and, and the capabilities, the demonstrations, all of this together? What are some of the challenges that you face? Yeah, every project has a whole host of, of challenges. So so myself as the Flight Demonstrations Capabilities Project Manager, uh, you know, I'm managing a portfolio of projects. And so I'm watching over the project managers that manage each of these activities. So I've kind of got the big picture look across things. And so I have to worry about things like cost and schedule. Those are always critical to any project. But the real challenge comes into, yeah, you want to be really, you know, a taskmaster. Okay, we got to get this done. We got to keep it on cost. But in reality, we're doing research. And research, you can't always predict the path. You can't predict all the things that are going to happen. That's why we're doing it. And so it's a constant challenge to balance, okay, cost and schedule against getting the things done and getting them done in the right way. You want to collect the right data. Uh, you need to push the technology along and not short circuit anything along the path. And you need to do things safely. And so it's really critical that um, we we balance those things. And it's, it's, it's always a challenge to figure out what that right balance is. The other part of that is really the technology itself. This is the other the other big challenge we always hit are these, you know, roadblocks, things that happen along the path that you have to recover from. Again, we're doing research and we don't exactly know the outcome in a lot of cases. And, you know, doing things smart, um, failing in a way, um, in a smart way is, is acceptable in a lot of the things we do. You know, the head of NASA Aeronautics, uh, Jaywan Shin, off, has actually created an award for what he calls a Smartest Failure Award. And so that's an award for people that are trying to do something very difficult and trying to, you know, push the boundaries of technology. And maybe they don't quite achieve it, but they do it in such a way that you learn a lot in the process. And that helps the next step and the next try at that, you know, at that technology area. So I'll just tell you about one challenge that we had on X-57. Um, that really was, it was very concerning. And um, we were concerned the project might get canceled along the way. So as I mentioned, X-57 is electric airplane. And so we had to develop a, a really advanced battery system. You know, and the, the auto industry has been pushing battery technology along and doing a very good job of it. But they've reached the point where batteries are light enough for them that cars that have 300 plus miles of range, and that's pretty acceptable for the market. Um, but for aviation, that's not going to work. We need to go much lighter and we need to have a lot more energy. And so they've helped us, but we need to push it to the next step. And so we're doing that with the X-57 battery. Uh, it's a, it, right now an 800-pound battery. It's pretty heavy, um, but it can power roughly 100 U.S. homes simultaneously. So it has a lot of capability, like a quarter megawatt of capability. And in the development of that, uh, one of the challenges is, you know, you're flying it in an airplane that's piloted. 
So we're always, of course, worried about the safety of the pilot. Uh, we don't want to see the airplane uh, fail. We don't want to see it to catch on fire. Um, these batteries uh, have a lot of energy. And once you let that energy loose in an uncontrolled way, uh, you're going to have really dire consequences very quickly. So we've put this battery design through all kinds of ground testing. Uh, we test it you know, at, at high altitude using a, an, an altitude chamber to lower the pressure. We test it under hot and cold conditions. We test it under vibration. And then we test it under different failure modes. And so it was during one of these failure mode tests uh, that we we had we had the issue. So the, just like car battery uh, advanced current car batteries, our battery is made up of many small cells, uh, thousands and thousands of these small cells that look a lot like a double or yeah like a double A battery, all connected together. And occasionally one of these cells can fail for some reason. They get overheated. They have other chemical problems or short circuit. And so our test was to look at sort of in the worst case location if we have what we call a thermal runaway, so the, the chemistry in that cell um, failed together and created a runaway that creates a lot of heat, is the design we came up with, does it contain that, that failure? In other words, does the heat, uh, does that battery cell fail and the heat, it heats up, but then nothing else happens and it, everything's fine and we can you know, continue the mission, fly and safely land the airplane. And during that test, we intentionally created a failure case where the battery, this one cell failed uh, and fortunately, it heated up so much that it failed the next cell, which then failed the next cell. And we had basically what we call a runaway thermal event that very quickly caught fire in the lab. This is why we do this testing. We did it on the ground. And so it didn't hurt anybody. And, uh, and But it was a major failure in our case. So we had a battery design that we could not qualify for flight. And so it was sort of back to the drawing board. How can we redesign this to try to contain this failure case? And so the team had to look at all kinds of different materials and different ways to package it and how do you contain a failure once it happens. And uh, what we, another thing we did is we reached out to our, our brethren on the space side of NASA. And there were people in the Orion um, spacecraft development team that were developing similar batteries for, for future Orion applications. And they had a packaging idea that um, looked promising and they suggested it to us. And so we, we, saw the, the value in that and we went through a redesign process and and got the battery weight down to very close to what we had originally had. We only gained a few pounds, a handful of pounds. And uh, it took about a year to go through this whole process of redesign and understanding the problem and coming up with this redesign and finally building it and putting it through the same test that we failed on the first time. And, uh, you know, with, with everybody's fingers crossed, we went through the test and the battery passed with flying colors. And the contractor that we work with on that has now already commercialized that battery. So there are other companies already buying this battery system for their electric airplane designs. And we're getting ready to fly it on X-57 as well. So that was sort of one of those cases where uh, it was a sort of a smartest failure case where the team did a, a really good job understanding the problem, stay focused, don't worry about the impact, but you know, press forward and, and um, be successful. And they did that. And so um, it was, a, it's a really good, uh, it's a, it was a big challenge, but it was something that the team's proud of that they pushed through that. Are there any other lessons learned that you could share with other project managers from maybe some other challenges that you faced? Of course, we could talk all day just on technical challenges, but from a management perspective, I think some of the lessons I've learned as being a project manager now since 2003 is that, you know, optimism is such a key role in being a project manager, right? Because you're 
you're overseeing the whole technical team and all the other support team, you know, the resource people and the people helping you with contracts and the technicians and mechanics and pilots. And so you're the person that has to uh, keep the team focused and pressing forward. And you can only do that with an optimistic attitude. You know, we had this failure with the X-57 battery, but it was key to, to, to let the team know we're going to give you the space to solve this problem and you're going to solve it. We're going to keep the project funded. We're going to keep it going. We're going to give you another shot at this. That optimism, I find, just sort of permeates the project. In fact, you know, when I think of optimism, I, I don't, I like, I like listening to people quotes, you know, famous quotes on different things, but I never remember them. But one has stuck with me and I, and it's <laughs> optimism is a force multiplier. Um, and that was um, by former general Colin Powell. And what, you know, what he meant by that is optimism just energizes the team and, and, you know, they, they do more and they can press forward with a lot more energy. So I've seen optimistic teams perform much better and get through issues faster. Um, I was a chief engineer on a project once and um, the center director told me that when the team walked in a room to give a presentation one time, that he could feel the energy in the room. And that was really the optimism of this team, that they, that they knew that their goal was important and exciting and that they were going to succeed at it. And it really was. It was really one of the most fun projects I ever worked on. And it was due to that optimism. So a project manager and other project leaders need to recognize, you know, be real. You know, we've got problems. We have to solve these, but but do it with an optimistic attitude. And then the other lesson I just wrote about recently is, you know, you got to be vigilant as a project manager. So I, I use the phrase, you have to turn over some rocks and see what's under them. And so what I mean by that is, like I said, the a project has many different aspects to it. And as a project manager, you have you can't be deeply involved in every aspect of it. People have to do their jobs. You're never going to be as smart as your structures engineer on structures, but you have to know a little bit about it. You have to know enough to ask the right question. So you want to be engaged with your project. And when you hear things that aren't quite right, you start asking questions. You turn over some rocks. You, you ask them questions about, you know, is this the right way to do it? Is there another way we could do this? You know, is this really necessary? What, what requirement are we trying to achieve with this goal? Um, do we need to bring in extra help? And so you ask these questions and by watching their answers, you know whether they've got it under control or whether they might need help. And you can identify issues early and engage some mitigations. Um, sometimes engineers will let things fester. They feel like this is my responsibility. I'm going to solve it, but it may be too big for them to solve. And when you see that, you say, okay, I'm going to talk to your branch chief about the problem and I'm going to see if maybe he's got somebody to help you on this problem because otherwise you're going to be the critical path soon and you're going to be the one delaying these other 42 people on this project, which we try to avoid. So um, walking around is sort of another element of turning over rocks. You're just sort of walking around, letting people talk to you and tell you what's going on. So this act of sort of just engaging at, at the surface, just a little below the surface until you start seeing things and then digging a little deeper when you do find things is a really key trait um, for a successful project manager. How do you anticipate the work you do will influence life around us? You know, it's it's always a challenge when you're doing research to, to know whether what you're working on is going to succeed and go out there in the marketplace. Sometimes it's very clear the path, like with, you know, the low boom airplane, we see, you know, that once we break down these barriers that exist, prevent us from having supersonic flight, that the market, the, the industry out there will fill that void and take things to market, create jobs. So I think 
there are some technologies like you know low boom creating totally new markets like this urban air mobility market that I mentioned before. It's going to transform the way people work and and the way they can get things done, um, and hopefully lessen some of the mobility problems and on the ground with you know all the traffic we see. So those types of things, opening up new markets, are are really interesting. There's a lot of technology we we do that are very focused, you know, uh, working some technology to improve safety on something or to improve efficiency in engines and things like that. And sometimes those make it into the products eventually, and sometimes they don't. It's 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 research. There you're not going to hit a home run every single time. But when you look at the, the the airplane industry that's out there and all the aircraft that people fly on regularly, we like to say that when you're flying. Um, you're flying with NASA Aeronautics because the technologies that NASA has developed are on every part of every airplane that exists right now. From the early days of NASA to now, we've made uh, airplanes, you know, more efficient, carry more passengers. You know, we're using significantly less fuel than we did uh, decades ago in the current generation of airplanes. And of course, industry has a major role in that, but NASA has this role that's really key for the government to push things along. We're helping reduce the noise on um, airplanes that, you know, that impact people, especially the ones that live near airports, even, you know, subsonic airplanes. I had a recent project with, in, within my project, FDC, to reduce the noise on landing gear. NASA has done such a good job on reducing the noise of engines over the last couple of decades that now the engines are, are you know, roughly as loud as other parts of the airplane w- when they're coming in for a landing. Um, the flaps on the airplane, the landing gear coming down create almost as much noise as the engines. And so now we're having to work on how do we reduce noise of the air flowing over landing gear when they come out and over flaps. And so we had a project looking at how can we streamline the airflow essentially or or dampen the noise that is generated by landing gear. And we did a whole flight program on that and found that it was very successful. It, it has a potential to influence in so many ways. Aeronautics has does work in, in uh, airspace management to increase the number of uh, aircraft that go through the system and to make them safer. Um, and then, you know, we're working on small airplanes up to large airplanes. So there's there's just a lot of application. Like I said, you don't hit a home run with everything, but, you know, you push it as far as you can and, and basically allow the people that spend billions of dollars building these aircraft and these systems to make those decisions with the new technologies, whether they have a role in the next generation of airplanes or not. Thank you so much, Brent. We appreciate you taking time to join us today. Okay, yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Links to topics discussed during our conversation are available at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast, along with Brent's bio and a show transcript. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends and colleagues about small steps, giant leaps. Thanks for listening.